wonderful. Well, we shall indeed stay in an attitude of worship as we come to God's Word. So, good morning. Good morning. Very good to see you, and uh, very good to have an extended time there with uh, with Jesus. Um, so, we are in a series on Genesis, as uh, many of you will know, and Mark has already teed us up in the last couple of weeks looking at an overview of these first 11 chapters and their foundational significance in the Christian life, so much that works out in the rest of the Bible starts in Genesis. And uh, if Genesis is shaken, we have problems. It's a foundational book. Um, And today we come to chapter 2. So we'll be thinking about particularly what it means to be in harmonious, beautiful relationships, godly relationships, and three-dimensional relationships, as um, as I'll say as we go through this morning. So we're going to begin with the text, and uh, we start at verse 4 in chapter 2. Sorry, a little in-joke with that. Uh, Pete and I there. He's just reading my notes, and it said at the beginning, read the text. But, uh, well, we thought it was funny, didn't we, Pete? I mean, (laughs) that kind of joke's not for everyone, but uh, there you go. Yeah, okay. So, Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you will surely die. The Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Chris knows why I'm getting excited. <laughs> therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, here we have a beautiful picture of uh, God creating at the beginning of time. And there's a, a contrast to chapter 1, which we looked at last week. Chapter 1 really is a, a cosmic overview of God intervening where there is nothing to bring something and create the whole universe um, from nothing. But in chapter 2, if you like, we narrow in a ground-level view of a couple of verses that are mentioned in chapter 1 and are expanded out. Now God gives special attention just to talking about this creation of of man. We know from chapter 1, through six days of work, God gently uh, builds creation, the pinnacle of creation being the creation of man, and in chapter 2 we get a real insight to everything that's going on here. Um, these verses really give foundational and fundamental significance um, to what it is to be created in the image of God, and what it is to be a human being, and how that makes us different to the rest of creation. Let me just remind you what was said in uh, chapter 1, this context. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The important thing here is that we are created in God's image that we are the image bearers of God, unique in creation. Now, what we're going to do is uh, just work through the verses a uh, little by little, um, and I want to sort of uh, build up to spending the most time just on the last couple of verses, but we'll walk through the text and draw out things that I think uh, are interesting. So we've moved from the kind of transcendent big picture um, view of creation to the locality and to really talking about one person, the first human being. Now, I don't know if you noticed um, when uh, we were reading through, if you were reading the text yourself, that uh, in verse 5, and you'll see I've drawn it out again in verse 7, it says, the Lord God. Now, that's different to what was in verse, uh, chapter 1. In chapter 1, the, the word God, Elohim, is used 35 times, uh, saying, you know, God's doing this and God's doing that. And here we have the Lord God, which some of you might remember when I taught before in Moses at the Burning Bush. When you see Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, it's the proper name of God, Yahweh. God's personal name. And it's as if we're moving from this overview of the God of all creation to the personal God who we know, Yahweh Elohim. It is interesting, just as a, a side note, that in, um, in uh, Genesis 1, this word Elohim is plural. There's a little hint there to the plurality of, uh, of God, and, uh, which we know now, of course, to be the Trinity. Now, so what we have here is the Lord God forming the man out of the dust of the ground. So we've gone from forming stars and galaxies and universes to God actually being more of a potter and working with the dust on one person to shape them as a potter would shape his clay. And something unique is happening here. And the reason I say that is only three times in the text is the Hebrew word bara used um, for creation. And it means created from sort of nothing or created anew. And it's for matter, for life, and man. And so when God is creating man, he's doing something different here. And uh, we are the only beings in all creation that sort of um, combine heaven and earth because God is breathing life um, into creation here. 
Now, I don't know if you are aware from the English, but this is the only time in the whole Bible this phrase is used. Nishmath Chayim, which is the Hebrew for this breathing, the breath of life, the breath of life. It's only used here, and something different is happening when God is creating man. And that speaks to this idea of evolution and challenges it. Now, we've not decided to tackle evolution in, in this series. I've, I've taught on that before. I'm not against um, variation within species, but this idea of, you know, mice become elephants, I think, is a, is a difficult one biblically. And certainly for man, something different is happening here. God is breathing into man the breath of life. Now, what does it mean uh, to bear God's image? Because we are indeed uh, image bearers. And there are many ways in which we are not like God. So, uh, you know, we are not unchangeable or immutable as God is. We are not eternal. We're not omnipresent. Um, But there are many ways in which we are like God. You know, we can love. We can be in relationship and so forth. In fact, the reason we can be in relationship is because God is in perpetual relationship with himself in the Trinity. And there are things that mark human beings out from the rest of creation. For example, we are self-aware which animals are not. We can stand apart from ourselves and view ourselves as a project. We have creative imagination. We can see into the future and invent things that do not yet exist. Now, beavers build dams, and they build great dams, but they've been building the same kind of dam since the dawn of time, and a thousand years from now, they were building the same kind of dam. I have nothing against beavers. But they're, they're, they're not inventing space travel. You know, there's no discussions going on at the moment about first beaver in space or anything. And so there's things that human beings can do that animals cannot do, and there is something unique about human beings. One interesting thing is that in chapter 1, when God is creating, he uses the word. God speaks creation into being, doesn't he? He says, let there be light, and there is light. And we know, of course, that when God is speaking, this is the second person of the Trinity, the word of God. And uh, so one thing we can also do is, in the same way, we can use our words to bring order out of chaos. Now, God, you could say, by the spoken word, by the logos, brings habitable order out of chaos. And we can do the same through truthful speech. We should reflect God in truthful speech. The fact that we're also made in God's image means that we, as human beings, have a level of dignity, and that means the way that we treat the elderly or the young or the unborn has massive significance as we are God's image bearers. Now, it says here that God placed man, or Adam, in a garden, uh, the Garden of Eden. And so we find out a little bit first about, about his environment, and then we will find out in a moment about his relationships. It's notable here that this is a cultivated garden. It's not a place of sort of wild territory, and God himself has planted the garden. I think that says something about what the ideal environment is for human beings. Sometimes you get this uh, perspective in modern culture that you know nature really is at its best when it's just left alone. Well, I'll tell you, nature left alone is trying to kill you. <laughs> and God says that we are here to subdue the world and make it useful. And we have a picture of that here as God puts Adam in a garden. Now, it's interesting that uh, it, it says here that um, we've got these... Uh, trees that are springing up, and I've drawn out this text here, pleasant to the sight and good um, for food. We need, as human beings, beauty as well as utility. And it's not enough just to have things that are practical. We must have things that are aesthetic as well. Animals do not have the same needs that we have. 
And when people are overly derivative or functional about things, they miss something of uh, what it is to be truly godlike. So that means making you know, one room in your house as beautiful as you can make it is a godlike thing to do. It means that bringing aesthetic beauty to what we do is reflecting something of the creator. The typical English garden would have always been, you know, pansies and potatoes. The, the beauty and the utility, and both um, are required. The tree was good for sight and good for food. Now, I'm just going to move sort of reasonably speedily through these verses to spend a bit more time, as I said, on the, the final few um, verses. Now we come to this tree that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second, okay? That's quite a central point, but we'll circle back on that in just a moment. Now, the next thing to say is here that we have quite a, a specific description of the Garden of Eden. The key thing here is, we, we don't actually know exactly where Eden is, and I'll tell you a bit about that in just a moment, but it's important to realize this was a real place, Okay, we are not dealing in myth here. We are not dealing in sort of, you know, story here. We are dealing in reality. The description is so specific as to speak to an actual garden in an actual place of physical geography on planet Earth. Now, I think the flood probably changed the topography of the world. Because of these four rivers mentioned, we only have two um, that remain. Um, but we can even from those work out that probably we're talking here about the region of sort of uh, Mesopotamia, somewhere in what's called the Fertile Crescent, you know, modern day Iraq, old Babylon, somewhere around maybe Turkey, North Egypt. So quite a large area. But somewhere in the Fertile Crescent is probably where the Garden of Eden was. However, the key thing is this was a real place. And it's important when we're reading Genesis to understand we're dealing with real places and real people. Adam and Eve were real people. They're not representative of something. They were real to Jesus, and that makes them real to me. Now we see here that uh, Adam is given work to do. He is a gardener and a guardian. He has a garden to tend and keep, and also he has orders from God to follow. Now, it's important to say here that he is given a job. And uh, I think sometimes in modern culture, work can be a dirty word. But uh, Adam had a job before the fall, and Adam had a job before he had a wife. <laughs> If you have a young man courting you who does not yet have a job, he should get a job first. But uh, just word to the wise. You have a job before you have a wife. And, um, but what's interesting here is Adam is given meaningful work to do. And man was made for work. And also man was made for obedience. Neither of which are super popular ideas in modern culture, but both of which are very biblical ideas. God is a worker. Creating the world takes a day of rest, but God is active. Christ was a worker. 18 years as a woodworker, three years as a wonder worker. Jesus knew what it was to work in physical labor. And work is a God-ordained thing. But more than anything else, God actually wants obedience. Uh, from us. You see here that we are not to eat, or Adam is not to eat, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I think it might be fair to say that, you know, God wants our, our obedience as much or more than anything else. 
Again, not a super popular idea in modern culture, but a very biblical idea. And the only reason I think the tree is there, well, I mean, there may be many reasons that God put the tree there, but let's say one of the reasons that the tree is there is to give us choice. Because, you know, for it to be possible for us to show real loyalty, there needs to be a real choice. That we have one prohibition. God has given everything to be freely used with one prohibition. And that's to test whether we will trust God's word over our own desires. And that's a very good idea still today. Now, these trees are quite interesting as well, aren't they? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, neither of which are on um, you know, planet Earth at the moment, uh, although the tree of life does make a comeback in the new uh, Jerusalem. So we will see the tree of life again. And I don't know whether actually, because we are not immortal, um, that actually one needs to eat of the tree of life to be immortal. You know, I'm not sure. But it maybe these trees have magical properties, or maybe they're just sacramental in the same way that communion is. Um, some of you will have heard me teach a, a few weeks ago um, about what it means when we break bread and wine. And we said the bread and the wine are not magical, but they are sacramental. You can die from eating communion incorrectly. And in the same way, there are plenty of trees in the world that eat of them. You will die anyway. And we know that to be true. In fact, Debbie and I were reading recently, there's a, there's a bush in Australia that is so poisonous that even if you touch it, you go into convulsions and are physically sick. So there's certainly plenty of dangerous things around, so not too surprising that there could be a tree that you could die from. But I think the point is that it was to give us a choice about whether we trusted God's word, trusted him to make decisions about what's best for us morally. And that is a wise choice to make. We do have free will. But that comes with consequences. Now, when we come to verse 18, we come to the first thing that God has said is not good. All through Genesis 1, during the creation story, um, God is constantly saying, it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And the conclusion is, and God said it was very good. But now, God says there's something that is not good, and that is loneliness. It wasn't good for man to be alone. Man needs to be in right environment, but also in right relationship. I don't know if you're uh, listeners to Desert Island Discs on Radio 4. But, uh, well... And Anne's just nodding. If not, you should go there immediately. But say, well, for the uninitiated, uh, the idea is you get cast away at a desert island, you get eight pieces of music, you get to take the Bible, the complete works of Shakespeare, you're allowed one additional book and a luxury item. And over the last 70 years, the good and the great from across the world have all been on desert island discs, and they're all to be downloaded as free podcasts. But anyhow, very often at the, at the end, whoever's doing the, um, the interviewing will say, how do you think you'd cope on the desert island? And a few sensible people say, well, I'd probably enjoy a week or two's rest, but then I think I'd go mad. But you get the occasional person that says, I think I'd be fine. I'm pretty self-sufficient. And I always think of this verse when people say that. And God is clear, it is not good for man to be alone. We are designed to be in relationship. Now, to the three-dimensional relationship. I think primarily we are designed to be in relationship with God, our upward relationship. We are also created to be in relationship with the creatures below us. And yes, I did say below us. 
because God said that we are to steward the earth. If you like, Adam and Eve are king and queen, co-regents of creation, and we are to make it useful. Now, that doesn't mean we're to be irresponsible, quite the reverse. But man has authority over uh, the creatures and the uh, physical creation. But also it's critical that we have relationships on the horizontal, or peer-to-peer relationships. Uh, in my professional work, as some of you will know, I spend quite a bit of time with you know, business owners or MDs and CEOs, and I can say that's a lonely job. And uh, the reason is they get plenty of instructions down from you know, boards or shareholders. They're certainly able to give instructions down, but they don't have anybody to speak to on the side. And it can leave you quite lonely and isolated. I mean, I don't know how much sympathy you have for CEOs, I'm not sure. But, uh, but uh, the point is, having no peer-to-peer relationships is difficult. It is uh, difficult. And man was made for fellowship. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I am going to make a helper for him. Now, it says here that uh, there wasn't a helper fit, so God needed to to make one. And here we have the, uh, the first operation under anesthetic. Adam is operated on by the Lord God himself. Uh, God takes a rib from Adam to make the woman. Now, this is significant. And uh, I don't know whether you've taken this uh, literally or figuratively. I think, you know, we should, we should take it as written. Do you know, incidentally, that uh, ribs grow back? So very often, um, thoracic surgeons will remove ribs to use the, the DNA or to use the actual bone for other um, uh, things and operations. And uh, within two to three months, a rib grows back, either in whole or in part. Interesting, isn't it? But uh, anyhow, um, do you believe God can do that? Do you believe God can create something from a rib? If you don't, you have problems with God because God created the whole universe ex nihilo, from nothing. From nothing. Now, I mean, if I gave you a pile of something, say I asked you to create a rabbit, and I, I gave you the, the skin and the, the, the skeleton and maybe some of the organs and so forth, it's getting a little bit gory, isn't it? And uh, now, I mean, you would even have the raw material. Could you bring the la- rabbit to life? A rabbit that actually worked? No. <laughs> Try doing it out of nothing. Try doing it out of nothing. Now, God created everything from nothing. And as a Christian, we either need to believe an eternal something or an eternal nothing created everything or an eternal someone created everything. And it's very important here because this idea of taking Eve from Adam is saying that Eve had no human mother. Okay, and that is a challenge to macroevolution. Now... To the poetry. Um, I don't know if you notice in your in your Bible. Sometimes you'll see sort of you know uh, to the margin uh, lines. That's the prose, and occasionally you'll see uh, words that are centralised like this, and that's indicating that it's uh, poetic. Uh, many of you will know this, and the Psalms are that way, and so forth. And what happens here is when God makes the Helper and brings Eve to Adam, he breaks out into poetry. This is bone of my bone and uh, flesh of my flesh. And Chris was laughing because he knows what I'm going to say. That uh, One of our favorite preachers, David Pawson, said, a good translation of that sentence is that Adam actually said, this is it! <laughs> and, uh, you know, you imagine he's been spending his whole time you know, looking at oxen and naming them and lions and so forth. And now, Eve, well, you know, better. <laughs> now... 
And it's interesting because, you know, Izzy was bang on when she was saying, in her brilliant word, I thought, um, that, you know, the rocks are praising God just by being and the, the animals are praising God by being, but we can do something different. Incidentally, I don't know how you responded uh, a minute ago to that idea of, you know, uh, the helper, that uh, God is going to create a helper. And uh, if, if you don't think that sounds great, bear in mind that the person most commonly described in Scripture as the helper is God himself. Hosea 39 says, He destroys you, Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. God himself described himself as a helper, and he says, that's what man needs. And uh, I don't know about you chaps, but I can certainly say that in my own life. I am grateful to have a helper. But, uh, well, that didn't go down quite as well as I thought, but there you go. (laughs) Not every joke's a winner. Now, so, God, (laughs) Adam breaks into poetry. Here's the key thing. Woman is part of man, which means man is incomplete without her. Woman is part of man, and man is incomplete without her. Have you ever been chatting to uh, somebody at a party and uh, either a man or woman walks over to join them and they say to you, you know, oh, have you met my other half? And people mean that, literally, whether they realise it or not. And actually, psychologically, there's very good evidence to suggest that that's what people do. Um, On one of the Myers-Briggs, or two of the Myers-Briggs scales, one is called sensing or intuition. It's about people who prefer to take in information by detail or big picture. And the other one is thinking and feeling, which is how you make decisions. And uh, there's good evidence to suggest that people pair up with their opposites, what are called their functional opposites. People are looking for the other half. Now, just before we look at, and this is where I want to spend really the the, the final 10 minutes of our time, is just with these verses. Um, Because here we're we're looking at the first marriage. And so we'll have a look at, you know, what does the Bible have to say, even in the opening chapters, about marriage and uh, what it's meant to be. And just before I say that, I want to be sensitive, because I know not everybody is married. Some people are single by choice, or sometimes people are single not by choice. Um, Singleness can be a gift, or singleness can just be something that you, you don't want to be in. But we're going to talk about marriage, because that's really what these verses are pointing to. Now, the text says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In the King James, the language used to be leaving and cleaving. And I think that cleaving word is quite a good one. I'll come back to why in a second. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, so there's quite a bit that we can learn about marriage from these verses. So this is the first marriage in history. And it's God who gives the bride away. Um, And I think the first thing that we realize here is that there should be a leaving and a cleaving. So what does that mean? That when people marry, they are leaving father and mother and setting up something new, and cleaving is, is coming together. And what that verse alone suggests is that sex is given for partnership and intimacy as well as for children. It should be one man and one woman. That is biblical marriage. And that is quite a bit to say in modern culture. That means heterosexual. It also means monogamy. (coughs) Now, I... um a number of years ago, did a, a leadership program with... I uh, had some guys come over from the... Um, well, from the Sudan. 
And uh, the Sudan at that time was uh, was kind of an expanding uh, economy. You know, most people know that part of the world for places like Darfur, but there are there are places where there are, you know it's, uh, economic growth. And anyway, these guys were people who ran you know banks and uh, import export companies and airlines and so forth. And they come over for a four day leadership program. And mainly, most of the guys were Muslims. And uh, nice guys, and uh, I got to know them quite well over the course of the four days. There was one guy in the group, he was called Figiri. And Figiri had two wives. And uh, he got quite a bit of ribbing from the other guys over the, the program of the course for having two wives. I don't know because they thought they were jealous and fancied two wives themselves or what it was. But uh, anyhow, they, they kept mentioning this, oh, Figiri, big man, two wives, and so forth. And uh, Figiri is quite a quiet guy. He didn't really say very much uh, during the, the, the four days until we were sort of winding the, the course up. And by this time, uh, Debbie, my Debbie, and uh, Lucy and James had... had come and join just to kind of meet the guys at the end of the program and so forth. And James, who was a young boy at the time, heard what Figiri said, which I'm about to tell you, and then dined out on it for the next sort of, you know, years telling the story sort of once a month to anybody who would listen. But anyhow, so uh, just uh, getting ready to do some photographs and uh, Figiri, just in a moment's silence, just almost himself, said, uh, when first I was married... And everyone turned round to look at Figiri now about to reveal the situation with the two wives. And he said, when first I was married, he said, uh, I thought, I will be lion with two sheep. He said, now, after many years of marriage, I realise I am sheep between two lions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other guys seemed to lose their interest in uh, two wives. But uh, the biblical idea is one man, one woman together forever, as uh, my friend and pastor Simon Dust says, a wifey for lifey. <laughs> okay, now we're leaving, setting up something new, we're cleaving in intimacy, and uh, there are different roles for men and women, because um, the, um, the man comes first, so he is responsible, not superior, but responsible, and in Christian marriage there are different roles. Now, Matthew Henry, the biblical commentator, put it, I think, beautifully this way. He said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Well, I think that's a beautiful description of Christian marriage. But what's interesting is that marriage is actually something else. It is a picture, a cosmic picture of Christ and the church. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting Genesis. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let... Each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The picture of Christian marriage with gentle, caring headship is a picture of the relationship with Christ and the church. Not one of domination, one of mutual submission and love with a gentle leading that the, for, the husband has responsibility in the house for. 
Now, this is also a picture of the Trinity. Because I know that this is a, an idea that is not super popular in, in modern culture. But uh, if you look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are equally God. But there is difference of role. The Father sends the Son. The, Spirit, the, the Son sends the Spirit. They have different roles. There is a leadership role that the Father takes, but they are equal. They are equal. And we must hold the two things um, together. God's people are called to show the world what real relationships should look like. Loving, mutually submissive relationships. And uh, that should be a beautiful picture that people should see. Now, they were naked and not ashamed. Now, I'm not going to say too much about non-clothes wearing, so you'll be happy to know. But uh, I think, I mean, th they were naked. They didn't have clothes. But it means more than that. I think it means nothing to hide. The hiding only started after the fall. The covering up only started after the fall. They are completely open, transparent between one another. And that is what a Christian marriage should be. No secrets. If you have something you cannot share with your partner, if you have something you are keeping in the dark, something you do quietly in the corner in your own time, that is not God-honoring and that is not honoring your husband or wife. Christian marriage should be transparent and open. I'll be very practical. That means no passcodes on your phone that your wife or husband doesn't know. No passwords on your computer that your wife or husband doesn't know. Complete honesty, transparency, nothing to hide is the picture of a beautiful relationship before God. So, in Genesis 2, we have this picture of God creating man specifically and specially to represent him, made in his image, not like the rest of creation, different, with responsibilities to steward creation and to be in relationship with God, but to be in relationship with one another. God reveals himself most completely as male and female. God reveals himself most completely as male and female. And we have the status of being image bearers, men and women equally valuable before God, equally bearing his image with different roles. Critically, paradise is being in right relationships. We sometimes think of paradise as a place and th that was true too for Eden, and that will be true again in the new heaven and the new earth. But paradise is also having our relationships right in all three dimensions. Having our relationship right with God, by being obedient, submitting to his word. Having right relationships with our environment, which we steward wisely. And having right relationships horizontally with those we love, and particularly in marriage. If one of those gets out of kilter everything gets out of kilter. God created us to reflect his glory. Amen.